Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richmond. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry. We engage in conversation with colleagues and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Sarah Mosier, Assistant Professor of Costume Design and Technology in Theater Arts at Baylor University. She has an interest in universal design and design systems, cultivating design thinking in students, and engaging with questions about design life cycles across disciplines. Recently, Professor Mosier participated in Baylor's Paulo Freire Centennial, celebrating the founder of Critical Pedagogy, co-designing the celebration's installation in the university library, and serving as a panelist, discussing assessment in the fine arts and what she calls the pedagogy of autonomy. We are delighted to welcome Professor Mosier to the show to discuss the slippery work of assessing learning in the arts, students' fear and anxiety related to education, and the journey toward critical pedagogy. Sarah Mosier, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the main thing that we wanted to invite you on to talk about here today, which we have not really had a chance to in our previous podcast episodes, is to talk about critical pedagogy. And this is something that I recently became aware of that you are interested in and have have worked with your students and developed yourself as an instructor along these lines. So I wonder if you can just kind of define for us what this term critical pedagogy means and describe how you came to kind of adopt this approach or this philosophy. Sure. Um, I'll answer your question sort of in reverse because I became frustrated with uh, working with students and finding that they really wanted a checklist of things that they needed to accomplish in order to feel successful in a class. Uh, And the work that I teach tends to be much more fluid and creative. So I needed them to engage in a different way with the content and was struggling to figure out a way to make that happen. And I realized that what I wanted to do was really focus on making the goal of each um, course that I taught be to have the students be more fully themselves in order to engage with the material. And I tried a number of things to do this. Um, I tried a few different ways to give them some grace. I tried a few different ways to give them more structure. Um, And I was struggling a little bit with how to accomplish that, but I just felt like it was the right path forward. Um, And then very late in my career, um, I encountered the work of Paulo Freire, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, as well as Bell Hooks and other writers who engage in these methodologies out of which the idea of critical pedagogy came. And this sort of solidified for me that the struggles and frustrations I was having were valid, first of all, which was great. And that also there were some people who were already working on this and were doing great work and had been for since before I was born. Um, so I just sort of became very engaged and interested in this idea. Um, and critical pedagogy really looks at 
the ways in which we not only engage the content, but also engage the form of learning and question, how is the form, uh, how is the form working? Is it working? Is it not working? And how do the students become more active and engaged and empowered learners, um, being part of the conversation of critiquing the form of the learning as well as engaging with the content. So that's how I came to critical pedagogy. And the part of it that really uh, was most exciting to me was again this reaffirmation of the importance of each person recognizing themselves in the work and advocating for themselves in their learning process. Well, I'd love to pick up that thread there. You know, you mentioned students becoming more themselves and at Baylor, but not just at Baylor, in higher education more generally, we often talk about and hear our institutions talk about transformational education. And so I'm wondering, is do you think there's a tension there between, on one hand, seeking to transform students, on the other hand, seeking to make them more fully themselves? Or is it just different ways of saying the same thing? For me, it really is the same thing. Um, because I think the journey of becoming more fully ourselves is a lifelong journey that will never be complete on Earth. Um, uh, I think of like Romans 12 or the talk about renewing of your mind and the fact that each person is so uniquely and individually made with certain talents and abilities. And of course, we all have different life experiences as well. And so those really shape who we are and will continue to shape who we are as we grow in our relationship with Christ and we grow in our relationship with each other. And so I think that the act of becoming more fully ourselves is a transformational act. And so if we are asking students to just take the information and regurgitate it, that's not the same as being transformed by it. I argue that in order to be transformed by their education, they need to engage their full selves, which means mm. they have to become more fully themselves. And all of us are learning uh, who we are every day um, with constant sort of critical focus and uh, prayerful attentiveness. So I see it as a lifelong journey and an opportunity for them to explore that in an environment where we can support them in that endeavor. I'm no expert in uh, Freire's work, uh, but, I, but I do know some of the context out of which it arose, um, particularly you know, class struggle um, in Brazil and, uh, and really the notion of bringing people uh, to an understanding of themselves as agents um, and not simply uh, as oppressed. Um, so I'm wondering what kind of translation work needs to be done when you bring that philosophy born out of intense class struggle into, you know, a place like Baylor where that's not as much the concern that students are, are bringing uh, with them. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think the term oppression and oppressed is a very loaded word, especially mm -hmm. in our culture. And so I think there's always some caution there about how we talk about it. But I think what I like about Freire is like the core principle is this idea of agency. And this core principle is the idea of the fact that through education, through learning, um, you can become uh, have more agency. You can become more active in your work in the world and with each other. And I think that that, to me, is universal. Um, and especially if we are thinking about in the Baylor community, 
um, creating people who will go out into the world and live out a Christian mission. Um, it's really critical that they can be thoughtful and prayerful um, and self-reflective at all times in order to do that. And I, and I think that one of the other things that Freire talks about is in addition to this idea of the oppressor and the oppressed is also a more robust idea of uh, identity, mm-hmm. right? So various aspects of my identity would be sort of in the majority in the United States and uh, and sort of be in, in a place where uh, it would be considered the oppressor. And various aspects of my identity would also fit in the oppressed category. Um, and so it's complicated and it you can't sort of water it down and make it narrow. And I think that that's what I really love about it is that it really challenges us to think about who we are and again, get a fuller understanding of ourselves and our role in society um, and our role within the church and our role um, as people who are leaving this place to go out into the world. Um, if we seek to transform, we must also be transformed. Um, and I think that the message that Freire has does a lot of that. I think there are definitely some places where I would take issue with some of the work. As Bell Hooks has pointed out, um, there are some issues of sort of, it's very patriarchal. But I think that I think that the core idea is really, really valuable, especially as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Like this idea of we are created in the image of God. So we must get to know our fuller selves in order to really do the work that God has called us to do in this world. So what kinds of concrete practices has this translated into for you? Is and has there been a development of, of how that has has worked for you? Absolutely. Yeah, they, I've tried a lot of things and some of them have just not gone well. Uh, but I think like the biggest thing that I've done is try to be really transparent with my students mm-hmm. about what I'm doing. And I find that the more transparent I am, the better it goes. So I'm transparent about my goals and what I'd like to achieve, but also transparent and in inviting them in. And also very transparent when something doesn't work. Uh, before we started, I was mentioning that I had to retool the last half of my class this semester because I was responding to the fact that the students had a very different need than I was expecting them to have. And so I was very honest and I said, I sense that you need more time. I sense that we need to reshape this. Um, And they affirmed that. And I said, how about if we do this? And they were very excited about this new opportunity. So I think holding holding it a little bit more fluidly has also uh, served me really well and going in with with structural ideas, but also not holding that structure rigid, being really responsive to each individual student and the culture of the classroom, because we have sort of that sociological culture that's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the things I have done are, um, one of my dear friends introduced me to the idea of standards-based grading, um, and I was able to adapt it in some ways and do skills-based grading, um, which allowed students to really just work towards individual skills in the class. Um, And that has had sort of mixed effect. I realize that um, it still serves as a bit of a top-down or banking model of education um, that Ferrari talks about as being a challenge and being not what we want. Um, And so I've I've tried to play with that in some ways and see if I can make it a more uh, cohesive structure that really leans into the student's agency. and I think that there are some room for that in skills-based classes, but 
uh, in my lecture classes, I've changed it entirely. Um, I've been inspired by um, the ungrading work that's being done and um, have the students create their own goals at the beginning of the semester. So they create very concrete goals that they want to achieve in the course and then have them reflect every few weeks on how they're doing in relationship to their goals. Um, so instead of asking them to turn in specific assignments and giving them a grade on them, I have them reflect, I have them talk about the course content um, to show that they can critically assess the content and also that they can make personal connections with the content. Um, and then I respond back with my own questions and thoughts and ideas and it becomes more of a dialogue between myself and the students. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately the students assign themselves a grade for each assignment that we do um, based on our conversation. And they're usually very honest and very, very accurate. Um, and that has been really successful and it really does put the onus back on the student to decide how they want to engage with the content and to decide how they what they want to take away from the course. Um, and so far, I feel like that's been the most successful work that I've done in this area. But of course, it is an ongoing process and I'll continue to develop new methods. I love the self-assessment piece of that and I'm thinking more and more about ways to integrate that informal and in informal ways too. I'm teaching a graduate seminar course this semester in the School of Education, uh, teaching and learning in higher education. So it's very meta. Every time <laughs> we do something, I can say, why did I do that? And why do you think I did that? And did that help? And um, and every, every class session, it's a small class, nine students, every class session, I ask the students to arrange themselves in some new order. So just to start the class with getting them to talk to each other and figure out how they're going to arrange themselves. And just yesterday, I asked them to arrange themselves in the in the order uh, of the of their quantity of contribution to the class. A very kind of facetious way of like you know getting them to think about how much do I talk and contribute in in this class. And I was surprised at how accurate they were, mm -hmm. uh, and how 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 easily they took to that self assessment piece. So uh, I think you you'd be surprised when you just sort of ask students to do that. That they can be pretty accurate. We might be worried like, oh, they're just going to give themselves an A. But no, they can be pretty self-critical. Yes, absolutely. I find that it often is the reverse that I have to be like, actually, you did better on this yeah. than you thought you did. <laughs> you know, um, give yourself a little bit more credit here. Yeah. But I do, I do think that they are very, very astute in understanding how much they're contributing and what their learning is like. And I think that's part of the heart of what I particularly enjoy about critical pedagogy is this idea that like we as individuals all know like in our hearts what we what we are doing and not doing and should we not bring that to the table should mm -hmm. we not unleash that because the other thing that's a concern of mine is that in the creative fields such as theater which I teach in and I used to teach in in fashion as well in my other institution um, once they enter the job market in the professional world they're expected to be uh, they're expected to have a really strong sense of self mm. and they're expected to have a lot of ambition and they're expected to be self-motivated. And uh, the current academic structures don't really allow for that in the same way. And so I tend to find that students who are exceptionally fantastic and ambitious academically really struggle in the professional world because they don't have the checklist. Mm. They don't have somebody to please. Um, and so it's difficult, and I say this as somebody who's been successful academically, I've had to unlearn some of those thoughts yeah. in order to 
to become a self-starter and to try and engage my own uh, my own artistic sensibility uh, in the work I do. You mentioned the banking model. So I think maybe for the sake of our, our listeners, we should explain what exactly that is coming out of Pedagogy of the Oppressed and sure. how that functions. Yeah, so Paulo Freire talks about the banking model of education as um, sort of the method that we're all familiar with, where the teacher stands up front and um, says out loud a bunch of information, sort of a lecture model. The students all take notes, and then they're expected to regurgitate it. So basically, we are banking information into our students by mm. placing it into them, and then they are, we are expected to be able to take a withdrawal of the same information. Um, the problem with this that I, I think a lot of uh, educators will will say, and a lot of studies have shown, is that um, that doesn't lead to lasting um, engagement with the material. So as a student, maybe I could do really well on an exam and really good at memorization or really good at regurgitation. Uh, but then five years down the road, if you ask me about it, it would be really fuzzy. And I'm not sure I would really have connected that information and kept it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the banking model uh, is critiquing both the final outcome, like I just mentioned, but also this idea that I standing at the front of the classroom and an expert in all things, and you should listen to me and write down what I have to say and not question it. And I think that was the really big critique uh, in that uh, in the work was, you know, let's let's shift this balance. We are all human beings, which means we all have um, perspectives and we all have information and we all uh, have places where we do not know things and we are learning things. And we know that information changes constantly. So to get up in front and say, this is the way it is. I want my students to say, I just read a new article that actually contradicts that. And I can say, oh, that's really great. Let's tell me about it. Why don't you talk for a little bit? Mm -hmm. I really want them to bring the sort of aliveness of information and the way that it's fluid and constantly growing and blooming. I really want them to bring that to the classroom and not just listen to what I have to say, write it down and regurgitate it. One of the things that that all of this philosophy sort of challenges is the traditional kind of approach to what the, the nature of the instructor's authority in in the classroom. Because as you're describing it there, uh, your authority, such as it may be in the classroom, is not directly tied or directly dependent on you being the one who always knows the right answers uh, uh, to things. But also there's, you were mentioning like being transparent and flexible with, with students. And I think some instructors kind of sense of authority is tied to that. Like I'm the, I'm the enforcer of the deadlines and the protocols, and this is the contract syllabus kind of thing. So I wonder if, if you, if you can just reflect on how that has changed the way you think about authority in the classroom do you even think in terms of authority or is that kind of not 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 an applicable concept for you oh i think about authority a lot uh because i again i i'm somebody who thrived in the academic model uh precisely because i was like this person knows everything and i'm just going to quietly sit here and take it all down and so i did very well Mm -hmm. um but it really made me think oh there's so much that i am uh sort of regurgitating that may or may not be correct because I haven't looked at all the source material myself and yeah. taking their word for it. Um, so I, I think that really challenged me to think about it. And then 
you know, there's been times in theater, we work so closely with the students because not only are we working in the classroom, but we're also working in a practical setting, um, producing shows. So we have a much, many more contact hours with students. Um, and so as a result of that, there are times when I feel like I don't have, you know, a level of authority. I feel like we're on the same page. We're working side by side with the same roles um, in this production that we would have in the professional world. And then something comes up and, the stu- and it's revealed to me that the students didn't say something to me because they were afraid of my authority. Mm-hmm. And so it's really made me have to acknowledge the fact that I will have authority solely based on the fact that I'm in the position that I'm in. Um, and I find this to be true with students who come to Baylor, that they're very interested in like, how can I fit within this structure? Um, and so it's difficult for me to figure out how do I undo that structure in a way that doesn't completely undo them, but how do I undo the structure in a way that I can invite them in and create a brave space in the classroom where they can say, you know, I actually read this and I don't think that what you said was right because I want them to do that. Mm -hmm. I want them to challenge me and I want to learn. And I think the only way to do that is to first acknowledge that there is naturally going to be an authority, um, sort of layering and structure in the classroom that's just going to happen Mm -hmm. and then being constantly aware of it makes me able to um, try to break it down and encourage them to be brave i won't ask you to speak for all women but (laughs) do you in your experience are there additional challenges related to that as an as a female instructor because we know that women are more likely to be challenged by their students in their area of expertise and in their their policies so do you feel that that tension is that something that you've noticed when comparing your efforts to maybe male colleagues or something like that yeah I definitely I definitely have some sense of that I think I've also been uh been sort of fortunate I guess in in a sense because my area is costume design and construction and uh, people tend to think of anything clothing related as related to women mm. um, so there's already sort of an an, an assumption there um, that actually gives me a little bit more leeway yeah. um, but there are definitely are times when the structure of the class or how I choose to implement grace or how I choose to uh, make decisions can be challenged, um, especially by male students. But I also find that the more transparent I am with what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and how it benefits them, the less problems I have with that. I don't think that's going to be true across the board, of course. Uh, Mm -hmm. As you said, I don't speak for all women. But um, in my particular experience, it's really helped to be as transparent as possible and vulnerable as possible in those moments. and it's really seemed to um, help to level the playing field a little bit. You mentioned bell hooks, and I'm thinking of teaching to transgress. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one of the ways that she really extended the conversation of, of critical pedagogy was uh, focusing on the, the instructor's sense of self and especially like embodiment, you know, she's bringing her feminist theory into it. So thinking about, I'm coming in here as a woman and this is the body that I have, I can't escape these things. Uh, So I wonder if you can reflect on how you align your sense of self with your teaching. Absolutely, yeah, I think uh, Bell Hux does a really great job of um, 
of criticizing Freire, but also taking what is uh, really, really good work and really good theory. Um, so I really appreciate the nuance and her reading of Freire. Um, and I'm very interested in and have been interested in this idea of embodiment, not just the fact that I um, that I present as female, but also that I live inside this body. And I, th- I think this sort of separation of body, soul, and mind um, that's been a part of our Western Christian tradition mm-hmm. um, is proving to be a challenge for people right now as we've gone through this pandemic time. People really are seeking to return to the body and to the land. And again, our relationship within creation, because we are part of the ecosystem of the the world and of the earth. And so if we aren't fully aware of sort of the layering that's possible, it makes it difficult for us to be fully present, Mm -hmm. um, both with ourselves and with our students. So it's something I think about quite a bit and I've worked on in various ways. I've done like movement practice. I've done movement performance work um, and eco-sonography, thinking about our relationship to the land, our relationship to our identities um, in all aspects of our identities and our relationship to each other in the, in the social settings, such as the classroom. So you mentioned ungrading. And I think about you know coming from someone who's who who's not trained in 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 the arts at least not at the the graduate level. Um, I, I think probably the arts have a lot to teach the rest of us about uh, about assessment because we already kind of see that as something maybe more of like a conversation and kind of an ongoing dialogue rather than in many STEM and humanities fields. It's like, here's your grade. You just, here's how you did on the exam, you know, and there's, there's much less emphasis on the process of it. So in what other ways has, has critical pedagogy maybe even uh, extended that, that part of assessment in fine arts that's already maybe there? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I like about working in the arts, as you said, is it's, it's already so much of a dialogue with the students. Um, but again, about bringing my own self to the table, I have so much anxiety about performance and about um, my own personal performance and whether I get an A or a B. And it really distracts me from doing the work mm. that I have set out to do. Um, and so I think that that's actually a place where the arts could do better is that we still use a lot of standard grading practices even though we're having those dialogues even though we're having those conversations we're having critique sessions we still end up giving somebody a grade and it's top down it comes from the instructor down to the student and I think that there's a lot of pitfalls that can happen there, including the fact that we all have really different aesthetic voices. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes a student will present something that I personally do not like, but I see where they've made the choices and it's really well thought out and it matches their own personal personality. Yeah. And so I say that is excellent work. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a trap there that if we aren't thinking about that, that we could say, oh, that's not good. Um, and we make judgment values about art, and I think that that's really, really uh, problematic. And I find that students who do really great and really compelling artistic work are the students that are putting more of themselves into the work, which is, again, part of why my goal is to have them become more fully themselves and to express that and to explore that and to embody that by doing the work and by creating art that it speaks to who they are as a person. Has this translated into 
articulating for students different kinds of learning objectives from from like your pre-critical pedagogy days <laughs> to that like on, like on the syllabus or some other documents that the students would actually see. Yeah, I I think there's this tension that happens right uh, between preparing students for the professional world and asking them to really develop their artistic sensibility. There's mm -hmm. this tension that's happening that's very real because there's this economic concern that students have when they leave that yeah. they be able to, to find work and do well. Um, and so there's a lot of skills that are specifically aligned with the things that they need to know in order to be a good professional in the arts and to be a good professional in the theater world. So I tend to make more of my um, outcomes related to that and say like in order to do really well at this job you will have to mm -hmm. do x y and z you will have to be a really good editor of your work you'll have to be critical of your own work um, and not be so married to it that you can't have that conversation with your work you have to be able to do the paperwork uh, <laughs> to manage your work if you can't do the paperwork you're not going to be successful like that's just the reality of it and I know that's not artistic and I know it's not fun but it is critical and if you embrace it as a part of your process you'll do much better hmm. so I think I think that tension sort of lives in that place where the outcomes are measured is what I can measure is are they preparing themselves for the professional world. What I can't measure, but I can have dialogue with them about is how much of themselves are they putting in their work? What are they learning about themselves in this process? How are they growing as a person? Um, how are they growing in their relationship to God? How is all of that informing their work? Mm. Um, and I think that assessing that gets tricky and um, that's always the constant tension. Yeah. Yeah. How do students react to the things that you've tried? Have you had any kind of massive uh, house burning <laughs> incidents? Uh, I, I, it's varying successes. Yeah. Um, so I try something new every, almost every class because I'm constantly yearning and hungry for new approaches and new ways to engage the students. Um, and I've definitely had times where I have not been successful and I find that um, in implementing critical pedagogy and new systems of assessment, um, if I spend the time up front to really explain it and then really work with them back and forth and maintain that dialogue and hold that space and keep that sort of sacred, making sure that I'm giving them myself when mm -hmm. I'm giving them dialogue, it tends to work much better. The places where I've been uncertain and I've been questioning my own methods I will hold myself back a little bit yeah. and then it proves to be unsuccessful. So I think that for me, the places where I've had success and the places where I've had failures are directly tied to how much of myself I'm putting into the work, which to me confirms my desire to help draw them out and yeah. help them engage and become more fully themselves. Well, and you're, and you're modeling what you're asking them to do in their own their own academic work too. Absolutely, I think that's essential. I cannot ask them to put themselves out there like that um, and not do it myself. Um, and so I had a class that um, that didn't go well with my assessment model uh, and I realized that I'd held a lot of myself back. Mm. And so I actually wrote an email to the class and said, you're right, thank you um, for your feedback and thank you for this. You're correct in all of this. I really appreciate your feedback and I'm very sorry that I created a space in which you felt more anxiety when the intention was to reduce it. 
um, I take full responsibility for that. Um, so I think using my re- responsibility and authority in um, in a in a thoughtful manner where I can say like as the authoritative figure I understand that you didn't feel like you could say some of these things at the time I'm glad that you gave me this feedback and I appreciate it and I apologize and showing them that I'm trying to be good stewards of the learning environment that I have authority over right so what are you what new things are you trying or wanting to try in the semesters ahead? <laughs> well, right now in my history of costume class, I feel like it's going very well. And the students have said that it is. So that's helpful uh, is is creating having them create their goals, um, like I mentioned before. So yeah. they write out very specific goals, three specific goals that are measurable um, and then they reflect on it constantly um, in order to have them engage with the content. I'll give them a couple of prompts that they can respond to um, as sort of their quiz. Um, but they can, the, the questions are very open-ended. So for instance, I would say, we've talked about how important land and place is in the development of uh, attire. So think about two of the cultures we've studied and compare and contrast how where they are has affected what they wear. Um, and so it really is open-ended and allows them to engage with the material in a personal way and also in a critical way. Um, and then they give that to me and I respond with questions that I have for them, but also just sort of questions in general. It becomes very conversational. Like, oh yeah, when I was reading that, I thought about this. Mm-hmm. And um, so it just becomes this dialogue. And then they read that and respond with what grade they think they should be awarded and why and how it relates to the goals that they have set for themselves. Um, And that's been going very well because I have students with very different goals in that class. And if I had done that class the way I normally do, which is really assessing, do you remember all these terms? I think I would have really lost a few people along the way. If I remember correctly, Bell Hooks makes a pretty pretty strong plea for small class sizes so is that something that you've you've had to navigate uh, here at Baylor or in previous uh, teaching uh, I'm extremely fortunate uh, because I happen to have very small class sizes um, part of it is being in the department I'm in and the work that we're doing requires so much hands-on work that mm-hmm. there's a limit to how many people we can interact with and have a meaningful um, dialogue with um, but also I think Baylor's really supportive of that of having smaller class sizes um, even when I taught uh, my largest class which was only 34 so I know that's that's still pretty small mm-hmm. um, I was able to have individual one-on-one zoom conversations with all of the students really get to know them and then offer them content based on our conversations and say hey have you checked this out try looking at this um, so I think that I'm really, really fortunate in that in that way. And I absolutely think that Bell Hooks is right. I think that if you're going to engage in critical pedagogy, you really need the space and the ability to get to know your students. Mm. And I think that's really hard to do when you're doing really large lecture style. Um, so I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've had to work in smaller classrooms. Well, Sarah Mosher, thank you for your reflections and taking time to talk with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Our thanks again to Sarah Mosier for joining the show today. 
In our show notes on the podcast website, you'll find links to the two main sources we discussed in our episode, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed and Bell Hooks's Teaching to Transgress. That's our show. Thank you for listening, and join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.